Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm your host, Tom Powers. On today's episode, I talk to Rod Blackhurst and Brian McGinn, the directors of the new Netflix documentary, Amanda Knox. The film explores the crime that became fodder for tabloid headlines. It began in 2007, when the British student Meredith Kircher was found murdered in her apartment while living abroad in Perugia, Italy. The local prosecutor, Giuliano Menini, focused on Kircher's American roommate, Amanda Knox, and her Italian boyfriend, Raffaele Solecito. The press framed it as a bizarre sex crime and dubbed her Foxy Noxy. The girl known as Foxy Noxy. Everyone is talking about it. I mean, it was a feeding frenzy for everyone. What more would you want in a story? I mean, all you're missing is the royal family and the Pope. The case dragged through Italian courts and tabloids for years, resulting in a conviction, an acquittal, then another conviction, and a final acquittal for Amanda and Raffaele. In the film, directors Rod Blackhurst and Brian McGinn managed to get all the key players to tell their versions of what happened, as well as a leading British journalist on the case, Nick Pisa. I selected the film in my job as the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival for its world premiere in September. Amanda Knox was in the audience for that screening as a silent observer. Two weeks after the premiere, I sat down with Rod and Brian at the School of Visual Arts, where I teach in the MFA Social Documentary Program. I asked how they first reached out to Amanda. The first voice you hear is Rod. We uh, first started working on this in the summer of 2011, and Amanda Knox and Raffaele were both still um, in, incarcerated in Italy. And we actually didn't talk to Amanda until after they were acquitted that year. And we flew to Seattle, and we you know, spent a couple days kind of you know, trying to get to know her and also trying to tell her about the type of film that we would want to make. Um, but it wasn't until the end of 2013 that she called us and said that she was ready to, to talk. She, she wanted to, I mean, at the time, I guess, uh, take the time to write a book. Yeah. She declined doing the movie. It's not, it's not as, it's not sort of like there was no response. It was like, she said, yeah, I don't know. I'm not interested. And where were you guys in your careers that made you want to take on this, this project? I had just, uh, I've kind of a documentary sob story. I, I made a, a this is the place for it. (laughs) (laughs) I had made, uh, I had actually, oh God, I had fully financed a feature documentary about this guy who had the most Guinness records of all time. And I'd spent about a year and a half traveling all over the world to all the documentary fundraising festivals and everything. And we'd finally finished financing it. And the same week that we finished financing it, the guy dropped out, the main subject. And so I went from having a feature documentary fully funded to having nothing. And I made a short out of it. And... Then Rod and I met and we started working together in LA. And I think we kind of right away realized the power of having two people <laughs> that you can bounce ideas off of when, when things go wrong, there's there's someone right there that you can collaborate with. Um, and so, you know, it was, in other words, it was kind of the, the kind of clear next project. Yeah. And we both had very diverse 
or maybe eclectic backgrounds as the as filmmakers, right? We'd worked in many different formats, different lengths, different types, different genres. Um, I'd made uh, like some documentaries about a, a band, you know, some sort of more of a, like a music documentary type thing or some, you know, a short documentary that also happened to be about musicians, but certainly wasn't because I was focused on musicians. But Brian and I also were making fiction shorts. Um, we were kind of like just young filmmakers trying to, you know, chart a path, right. And trying to find our way forward. And when something like this kind of presents itself, you say yes, right. You, you say yes and you open the door. And, you know, when we started looking into this in 2011, I don't think we had any idea that it was going to end up here. Um, of course you, you think that, you know, and you hope that you can make a film out of uh, a door being cracked open, but you don't know. Well, actually, Brian, it sounds like you learned nothing from your Guinness experience to now go after a figure like Amanda Knox, who was being pursued by all kinds of media and who you know, seems very susceptible to pulling out of a project. <laughs> yeah, I would say this this film, if anything, um, if anything, was it was. A, a great uh, a great chance to apply the lessons that I had learned from having a movie fall apart um, in in also kind of you know you learn earlier in your career as a documentarian how to deal with subjects right how to deal with the people that are trusting you to tell their story um, and so I think I applied a lot of the things that maybe I, I was kind of naive in the way I had approached my first project I think we applied them here so what was it like? Pursuing a subject who is simultaneously being pursued by all kinds of other media. Sure. I mean, here you guys are two independent filmmakers. At the same time, Amanda Knox says major networks trying to land her for big talk shows. I think I don't know if we've ever talked about this at any length, but I think we just assumed that other people were trying to talk to her or that there were other filmmakers out there. And I don't even know if we ever considered it or we never talked to anybody else or tried to, you know, get a sense of like what was going on behind the scenes. But we did know, right, that the networks were like hoping for an exclusive, which they eventually got, you know, and that was a long game that those networks all played themselves. At least we saw them in Italy starting to, you know, to to work to getting to that point. Um, I don't know. I mean, it was just, I think it's kind of maybe the, uh, the exact opposite approach that people would expect, which was, hey, uh, like we're just going to be hands off and we're going to sit over here and and wait. And we actually, of course, didn't think that she was ever going to call us and say she wanted to talk to us. We had kind of moved on to these other things in our own individual careers. And we had you kind of given up on this project. Yeah. I mean, we'd given up on the project, um, but in, we made it clear that if, you know, if they all got a hold of us, we would be there. Um, oh, we had no idea how it was going to unfold. I mean, so, getting that call was a surprise. So tell me about that call. When, when did it take place and what was going on? Yeah, she called us in the fall of 2013. Um, and, uh, you know, at the moment, and she, where was she in her? She case was that point? facing what uh, would become a reconviction by the court of Florence. Um, and we think, you know, uh, amongst ourselves, that's maybe the reason why she she called and said, I, I want to be heard. Like, I want uh, I want to make sure that, you know, someone listens to me and listens to my story in case she was extradited or in case there was something drastic that happened to her. Um, and she just said, I, I'd, I'd like to talk. Now people look at your film and it's a Netflix film, but at this point it's <laughs> not. It's it's not like she's calling no. the Netflix directors. No, I mean, I, I remember actually at the beginning when everyone was talking about these exclusives kind of feeling like, oh, my God, well, we don't stand a chance in heck because, you know, these everyone was talking. And I think, you know, people constantly talk about 
the money involved in these things. And it's like, first of all, no one in the movie got paid. That's just, there's no faster yeah. way to, to run into a kind of sticky situation than, than to get in, into that situation. And so because of that, when everyone in the media is saying, oh, who's going to pay multi-millions of dollars for a TV exclusive, we kind of went, oh, well, we don't have any, there's no chance because we're, we're being financed by Meta Haida, our producer, out of the out of the pockets of her production company, Plus Pictures. Which and, became which is, Minus Pictures. Yeah, we, always, we used to joke that the, <laughs> that the production company is going to have to be renamed after, after making it. Um, and so, I mean, you know, there was, there was really no hope. Yeah, I mean, it's even been suggested, too, that, like, PR people kind of put these individuals in our film as if there was, you know, a machine contacting Netflix saying, you know, we want you to make a, a film about our client and nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, you know, we only talked to people directly. And some of that too is why it took so long to make it, right? It took a long time to get a hold of Giuliano Manini and to gain his trust in the same way, uh, you know, we got a hold of Amanda. It's such a strange thing, you know, to have uh, people looking at it so differently than the process of how it actually and, came to be. And in fact, because because we didn't have the advantages of having a major news network behind us or anything like that, you know, we had to find kind of different ways to get in touch. So all the news networks were kind of pitching, I would imagine, the lawyers or the PR people or whatever. And we were kind of, you know, around the side trying to figure out, well, how do we how do we get directly in contact with these people? Do you have an idea why Amanda reached out to you as opposed to anyone else who had been uh, pursuing her story? I think something that has always been interesting to me is that when Brian and I met her in Seattle, um, you know, we were two people that were roughly her age and we didn't know her prior to this event, right? So we only knew the version of Amanda that was across from us. I mean, the same would be said for Raffaele or Giuliano as well. And I think in some ways, you know, that we saw her as this person that had uh, grown and changed as a human being because of these experiences. We didn't know that there was another version of her. And we just kind of took her at face value and took her and her experiences at face value and wanted to just understand her because that was the only version we knew. And I think she saw us treating her with a lot of respect you know, based on this mm. set of experiences and just having a lot of empathy for anybody in that situation. And maybe that's what uh, appealed to her. She said, well, these guys just want to see me as me, this person who is this version that I am now. I, I really don't remember talking much to her, which is very strange. I I remember more that she talked a lot. And I think that in in some ways, coming back to Seattle, I think you see in the film that you know, she talks about, oh, I thought everything was going to be the same when I when I came back. And then she gets back and it's not the same because she's now an internationally known person. Half the world still thinks she killed her roommate. Um, and so everything has kind of changed for her. And all of the people who I think she would normally have gone to talk to, uh, you know, there's there's extra baggage there. And I think that that was the thing that I remember so being so interesting was it seemed as though um, she she when she spoke to us, there wasn't that extra layer of like, oh, you're in my family or you're my friend. It was it was almost like in, in some ways, like she was journaling, but <laughs> directly at us mm. instead of kind of, uh, you know, at, at her loved ones or whatever. So when did you begin the interviews that we see in the film? Yeah, uh, the first interview we did was in January of 2014 in Seattle. And we kind of just went up there 
hoping to record an interview. And at the time, I think we'd even talked about maybe making a New York Times op doc. I think it was like, we didn't, we didn't know where it was going to lead to. I think we just wanted to start and just wanted to try. And, and at that point, when you're recording your first interview with her, where, had her case finally been resolved yet? Or was it, was it still no. hanging over her? It was no. just before the 2014 uh, Florence court like, came, to their, yeah. came to their uh, a new guilty verdict. So she had something on the line, right? She had, you know, and she knew that that, that verdict was going to be coming up and out Explain to me the interview process. How many times did you interview her? In the film, we see her looks as if it could be one uh, long interview, but I take it it was probably done in, yeah. uh, in with different the, parts with, where, with her wearing the same clothes. Yes, which created its own, as indie filmmakers, created its own issues because <laughs> uh, it was done you know, over the course of two years. And I remember there's this <laughs> Rod, Rod at one point had to go try to track down the shirt she'd used in the first interview because yep. we just figured, oh, we'll do this interview and that's all we're going to need. We'll go get these other people now. And then it turns out that, you know, the case and the story changed so much that we needed all sorts of different perspective information, but she didn't have the shirt anymore. And yeah. I remember there's this, there's this frantic, this is a good documentary The shirt is still story. in my house. There's a fr- there was a frantic search for we we believed that it was a Zara shirt, and I remember yep. there was a frantic search, g- googling to try to find this shirt so that we could yep. match the look of the of the interviews. Um, but I mean, basically, we and this was the case with with most of the people in the film. Uh, you know, is that one interview, especially about something like this, that takes a little while to to get into it and to kind of. Uh, in in some ways, forget that you're that you're being interviewed for a documentary and just kind of turn turn it into a conversation. Um, it takes a little while, and so we realized very quickly that we needed to talk to people multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, that actually brings up the other issue that you talked about earlier: is like how do you keep everyone invested in participating? And and so that was its own, you know, kind of working working with everyone and making sure everyone felt heard and and respected throughout the couple of years of doing these interviews was really important. I'm kind of having like hot flashes thinking about the the process of us building that interview set time and time again as just uh, two dudes. You know, yeah, that's the other. Tra- traveling around this huge backdrop that was maybe something Herb Ritz had used. We'd rented this backdrop. It actually was Herb Ritz's It was Herb, backdrop. Herb Ritz's <laughs> backdrop. And there we were uh, you know, uh, unfolding it, building it. It was just the two of us. Um, and again, a Netflix documentary, but yeah. <laughs> no gaffer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we did no it. Grips. We did it in yeah. Seattle. We did it in New York. Actually, Alex Gibney suggested the space that he used um, in in Going Clear, where Paul Haggis is interviewed. If you were to just take down our backdrop, that's where <laughs> Paul Haggis was sitting. Um, but we took it to Italy. Brian and I drove a a rental truck around Italy with a grip and electric gear and a backdrop. And I think the that, romance like, of documentary filmmaking yeah. Remember is, the, the, is uh, the, the, unparalleled. The, the diesel in the truck kept uh, like overflowing and we would have yes. to stop every 20 miles and siphon some of the diesel out as we were driving to Venice to interview Raffaele with the backdrop. So I want to ask about Amanda's interview because she is so present uh, for it. She has a real command of uh, detail of, uh, of everything that happened. And she has a she has a striking line that you use near the beginning of the film. There are those who believe in my innocence, and there are those who believe in my guilt. There's no in-between. And if I'm guilty, 
it means that I am the ultimate figure to fear because I'm not the obvious one. But on the other hand, if I'm innocent, it means that everyone's vulnerable. And that's everyone's nightmare. Either I'm a psychopath in sheep's clothing, or I am you. And it sounds like a line that's almost scripted. Yeah, like, how... everyone asks us that. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I asked her, you know, why do you think people are so fascinated by this story? And she thought about it for a while. And then I, I think I think that in a lot of ways, some of the things that we were talking about with her, she had not been asked, but she had thought about a lot. Mm. And I think that that was actually, there's this gap, I think, between, you know, what people who have gone through a circumstance like this think about and pour over in their minds over and over again, and what they're asked when they go on ABC with Diane Sawyer. You know, in, in that I guess that's a big difference because Diane Sawyer has 30 or 60 minutes to ask the gotcha questions. Yeah. And you have a longer time to go roam around for other details. And we're interested in different things. I think we actually, in a lot of ways, the the verdicts in the in the in the case freed us up to ask about larger questions. And so this, idea, I think, we were always fascinated from the beginning. I remember at the very outset of the film, the first kind of pitch of it was was really about the power of narratives and being kind of what it's like to be trapped inside a narrative that you did not create or that you what what happens when you make one misstep and it defines you for the rest of your life. And so in a lot of ways all of the people in the film fall into that kind of description. You you could describe all of their kind of journeys that way in the in the film. And so you know I think that coming at it from that lens we were not as interested in Okay, well, what about this detail here and doesn't that make you this? It was it was we we're much more interested in the larger questions. And so I don't think she'd been asked that and I think she'd thought a ton about why are there all these cameras? Why does everyone recognize me? And um she just came out with that. The family of the murder victim Meredith Kircher did not participate in the film. I asked the filmmakers how they grappled with revisiting this tragedy when the victim's family may prefer to put it away. Yeah, I mean, that was a, it's such a sensitive topic um, and something we spent so much, we spent so much time talking about that and thinking about that. I remember having lots of conversations with Matt Hamachek, who edited the film, about how, how we could deal with that. And I think that one of the things that we tried to do was we we didn't want to make it an examination of 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 her and trying to dive into these nitty gritty details of the crime scene and and um, you know all uh, all of that stuff that would that would continue to be um, you know and and is terribly painful I'm sure for the family and so at the same time we really wanted their voices to be in the movie. Um, and we we reached out to them a number of times over the course of making the film and, and never heard back. Um, and we would, of course, love to talk to them still. We would love to make something with them. Um, but uh, I, th- I think that in the making of the film, we tried to then include their voices at, at the points in the film where um, it felt like we needed to hear from them. And um, we did that with archival footage. And I think the 
the moment for me that stands out is is Arlene Kircher's reaction at the end of the the movie, where she this is the mother. This of is Meredith the mother, Kircher. Meredith's mother. And she's kind of confronted on the street by these freelance journalists. This is a piece of archival. Um, and they ask her, you know, what's your impression of the final verdict, of the Supreme Court verdict? And she says, you know, she doesn't really know what to make of it because we've had all these verdicts, two, two guilty verdicts and two acquittals now. And, you know, how, how to process that is something that I think is it probably remains very tough. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that the only thing that we could do was to try to, at at all points, ask ourselves if we were, if we, if we believed that we were being as as respectful as we could. Yeah, trying not to sensationalize it, but trying, of course, to remind people that it, at the heart of this story is this tragedy. One of the big themes of this documentary is the way in which a tragedy is commodified by uh, the media and. Um, and I wonder how, you know, you thought about your project and the risk of it being a perpetuation of, yeah. of another piece of commodifying this, this story. I mean, we thought a lot about it. I mean, especially, I think, since it became a Netflix project. And we, we're certainly extremely grateful to, to Netflix for the opportunity. And they've been nothing but supportive. Um, but at the same time, that raises that question. You know, it, it becomes a... Now it becomes something that's on billboards and on right, uh, right. TV ads, and yeah, and I think it's something that we're to be still, sold. To a I think public. it's something that we're still grappling with, to be honest with you. And I think that, you know, I was just reading articles that about <laughs> an article actually that the lawyers, a few of the lawyers from the from Making a Murder had written a few days ago about the fact that they're really still trying to figure that out too. I think mm -hmm. it's something that, in a lot of these true crime stories, there are stories that are deserving of being told. But at the same time, in telling those stories, it it you know is uncovering and and kind of um, you know reopening wounds for people. And so I don't, I don't really know yet that we that we personally have kind of figured out how how we feel about that. Um, I, I I do I do feel like there there is a story that that we tell in in this movie that is important. And um, I think that you know had there not been that that important story that we felt like needed to be told, we would not have made the movie. We'll be back in a minute with more from Rod Blackhurst and Brian McGinn talking about Amanda Knox. Remember to mark your calendars for Doc NYC, America's largest documentary festival, taking place November 10th to 17th in New York City. I serve as the artistic director you can choose from over 200 feature and short documentaries covering true crime, music, sports, activism, and more. Last week, we announced the Doc NYC shortlist, where we pick 15 documentaries that we predict will be contenders in award season. They include many films that have been covered on recent episodes of Pure Nonfiction, including Camera Person, I Am Not Your Negro, and Amanda Knox. Most screenings are followed by a Q&A with the filmmakers or special guests. To learn more about getting a pass or tickets, go to docnyc.net. 
This film is a lot about the impressions that were created around Amanda Knox from the very first time that she appeared in uh, the press. People were making all kinds of interpretations about an infamous video of her kissing her boyfriend, uh, Raphael, uh, soon after the crime and and how she appeared in court and what was the expression on her face. It's led to a lot of conversation that tends towards, you know, blaming her for uh, for her own predicament. And I wonder if you think there is any validity to that interpretation of her behavior. Well, you see at this moment in the film that uh, Giuliano Menini and her both talk about when she's being interrogated. And you can see how each of their own worldviews and, you know, their cultural backgrounds affect how they see the other. You know, Giuliano Menini says, well, because Amanda is uh, resisting interrogation that she's... Uh, you know, has some anarchistic attitude, attitude in his words that are maybe uh, emblematic of somebody from Seattle or from the Pacific Northwest. And and you can see from her point of view at that uh, point in the film that she talks about, you know, that like that she felt pressured. And, uh, and you can, again, see how, uh, how they're both trying to read into the other person's actions. And they're trying to, you know, have that uh, inform something greater when it could just be two people behaving the way that they they would behave. It maybe doesn't mean anything that that's greater than that. And I think that's the case with all of the actions that anyone is doing or anyone is having in the film. Right? There are all these enigmatic situations that people are trying to find something in and discover something in and see what that says about the person um, because uh, that's the way we look at people um, as hu- as human beings. What what I heard you asking was, do we think that in some ways, she's to blame for, uh, you know, the way that she behaved, and that and that kind of egging on this this um, suspicion of her, and I th- and I think the reaction to that is is sort of like, well, I think that's who she was, and so I, I don't think that you can really blame someone for behaving, in a in a way that that is authentic to them in that moment. I think that, you know, she looking back at that probably wishes that she had done things differently in some points. Um, but I think that hopefully what the film asks is sort of how are we all how do we all interpret other people's behavior and and come to conclusions about them because of it. And you know we were very careful in the film that the evidence that we really focus on and dive deeply into is the um, scientific evidence. And the stuff that, uh, it was more circumstantial, which was a huge part of the case, a huge part of the trial, all of the trials. Um, we tried to present that to the audience in in a way where you kind of put it in the audience's lap and say, here's, here's the stuff. And the audience actually hopefully starts to feel one way or the other based on their reaction to that stuff. And, uh, you know, there's the old film school Kuleshov effect discussion, right, where if someone if someone's face is impassive, but you edit it against a number of different images uh, that that inspire different reactions from an audience. The audience will actually start to apply their feelings and their reactions to these images onto the people's faces. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's how people looked at Amanda. They saw her outside the crime scene and they said, well, I would not have done that. Or maybe I would have wanted to be consoled by my boyfriend there. And so they applied then onto her look, kind of looking around outside the crime scene. They applied either, well, that must mean she's a killer or that must mean she's innocent. And so I think all of these things were super interesting to us. And I, I can't think of another case in which 
the the circumstantial evidence of a, of a of a story became actually what drove the news coverage and it was almost kind of like what do you think what do you think what do you think it became a pundit discussion over what how do, how do we analyze this behavior and that i think is super interesting because what happens then is you know now we're asking donald trump for his opinion on someone's behavior mm-hmm. and that's gotten a long way away from what do judges and a jury think? Mm-hmm. So, and there is like the super feeding frenzy around judging Amanda Knox, uh, uh, pro or con. And you know, I glimpsed a little of it uh, two weeks ago at the Toronto International Film Festival when we showed uh, the world premiere, and Amanda Knox uh, came with her uh, with her uh, current boyfriend. And uh, uh, I heard a verb I'd never heard before: a, a publicist texted me uh, before the screening. We hadn't made it public that Amanda Knox was going to be there, uh, but a publicist texted me, she's been papped, uh, meaning that the <laughs> paparazzi had uh, had, had photographed her uh, at the airport. And, uh, and you saw a lot of, you know, this Twitter coverage of, um, of her being at the festival uh, is just being a kind of free for all to I don't know what you know, uh, you know to cast judgment or um, or just to have something uh, clickable headline. Well, right, there are all these accidental celebrities, right, and her especially because the the story was made to be about her. So she's treated in these moments. Uh, it, it seems like a, as a celebrity, right, someone walking out of a, an airport, you know, dressed in a certain way and having their photos taken as they walk into a car. Um, you know, it, and it was happening while the trials were going on, right after she and Raffaele were, were acquitted. And it seems like it'll probably happen for the rest of their lives. But, you know, at, at, at one point in the film, Amanda talks about being recognized um, in, in a grocery store checkout aisle. And a woman reacts and says, whoa, like, I know you. And, you know, she reacts in the film, um, well, you, you don't know me. And I think that's something Brian and I've talked about at length is that, you know, you, you can't in 90 minutes, of course, understand the complexities of, a, of an individual. Um, and none of these people really want to be in the situation to have their lives analyzed forever. Again, Giuliano Manini as well as Amanda Knox. And they're all kind of caught in the, the lens of, of the paparazzi, um, at, which at times uh, takes the form of, you know, the nightly news. Um, well, and, even and, in Toronto, you know, she wasn't going on stage. She wasn't doing a press conference. Um, she wasn't you know, trying to draw attention to herself, uh, you know. She was also not promoting the film, which was, I think, what a lot of the reports were. Right. It's a strange promotion of the film uh, to not do any press. I I mean, and because we made the same offer to, you know, all the other participants that, like, they're they're welcome uh, to come attend a screening because it is all of their stories, right? It is not just Amanda Knox's story. Although, you know, the story was made to be about Amanda Knox, which is, of course, why the film is presented the way that it is, because that was the narrative that came to be. So that is the point of entry for most people. And have you uh, heard what it was like for her to sit and watch the, the film with an audience? Yeah, I think it was I think it was emotional for her. Um, just to backtrack for a second, I think the thing that I have a real problem with in the in the kind of discussion of this is that if someone is photographed or uh is public and and is commented on and seen by by people and that's reported to other people that somehow that person is seeking attention um and i i think that's a that's a real problematic step that we've taken in our society that these people that 
you know, might just want to tell their side of the story, <laughs> they certainly have a right to do that. And that does not that does not mean that they're trying to capitalize on something or trying to, uh, you know, seek spotlight or prepare themselves for a massive movie deal. <laughs> I think that. Uh, or being asked to be commented on by what they wear to the airport. Yeah, I think I think that, you know, regardless of how you feel about the case, and I think that, you know, even that issue has become divisive, right? And, and you know, supposedly, if, if you share that belief, you could only be on one side of the case. And I, I just think that's a ludicrous, it's a ludicrous suggestion that, you know, that, that if you decide to not judge someone for how they behave, that you're somehow taking a side. Um, and I think we, you know, there's a lot to answer for in our celebrity society uh, in the in the way that we, you know, on social media and, and all these other outlets jump to conclusions about people. Um, as Amanda says, people don't know her. We don't really even know her that well. And so um, I just think, you know, waiting before we judge is a better it's a better way to behave. So let me ask you about the media in this case. You uh, interview prominently one journalist uh, in the film, uh, Nick Pisa, a British journalist. Uh, why did you pick him as the, the person to focus on out of all the media that covered the case? Sure. Well, Nick was one of the first journalists uh, to arrive on the scene. Um, and he wasn't just reporting for the Daily Mail. Uh, he uh, also began correspond, uh, corresponding for NBC in the States or Sky News in the UK. Um, and Nick uh, was the type of freelance journalist that came to cover the story, right? They were, they were sent to Perugia and they were, you know, being tasked with uh, finding new headlines and new, new scoops every single day. Um, and as Nick says in the film, it's not just because that's his job, which he does do well. And, um, you know, of course, he's very good at, at finding headlines and finding stories. He's the king of scoops. He's the king of scoops. But he's also doing that job because the, that's the type of thing that people want to read. And he's, uh, he's giving, you know, people what they want in some, in some strange way. Here's a clip of Nick Pisa in the film. At the time, people were saying, oh, how could you do that? How could you cover such a story? And how could you be involved? And, and yeah, at the same time, these are the same people who are logging onto the internet first thing in the morning trying to find out the latest details, you know? Yeah, Nick's emblematic, too, of the, the type of journalism that was coming to be in that era. You know, uh, we saw a shift towards uh, social media journalism, uh, stories that, you know, needed to be turned into tweets or into, you know, Facebook updates or uh, links that are, you know, or headlines that, you know, people maybe wouldn't take the time to click through to the link, but they would kind of read the headline. Um, and so Nick was operating at a time when the landscape was changing and it was changing rapidly. And, and there were, you know, I think that there have been a lot of things said in reviews of the film so far that I think single people out as villains in the movie. And that's certainly not the way that we hope people watch the film. I think that, you know, one of the things that was interesting for us is the whole idea of, of who people see as the quote unquote bad guy can, is completely fluid depending on your point of view. Um, and we don't really think it's fair that people have kind of locked onto Nick as this, <laughs> as this kind of figure. I think that, um, well, let me say something about that because yeah. Nick Pisa, he relishes salacious detail. He's proud of scoops, even when those scoops f fed misleading information uh, into the world. And 
he comes across as absent of any self-criticism over stories that he put out in the world that proved to be wrong. You know, when you say that Nick is just giving readers what they want, I'm not sure I'm ready to just let him off from the uh, responsibilities of a journalist to dig harder for the truth and, right. and right. expend more energy uh, that's very, when you've made a yeah. mistake. That's to, very fair. And I mean, there were certainly many journalists who did excellent yeah. long-form reporting. I think that, you know, the point they're trying to make is more that there was this cultural shift towards, you know, and I think also if you think about Nick in his personal situation, as a freelancer, you get paid such a small amount of money per story. And you know, it becomes this chicken and the egg situation, right? If you're getting paid 150 pounds to write a story, it might even be less than that. I don't remember the exact I mean, figures. But I mean, when you're getting paid such a small amount per story that's published, uh, you know, you're kind of forced in the only way that you can put food on the table for your family is to produce X amount of stories a month. Like a volume. And so, and so, you know, while people can certainly say that Nick's definition of what he's doing is is not, you know, the traditional kind of check two sources journalism that that you know a lot of people talk about, it's also true that that the circumstances surrounding his his work created the the, the need to to do things that way. So I, I think that's you know it's kind of important to touch on that. Also, you said something about self um, self criticism. And I would actually argue that I'm not sure that anyone in the film is self-critical about anything. And I think that, you know, so many people, depending on the way that they view the case, think that one person or another made mistakes, right? And I think that was what was so interesting for us is that even each of these people are so ingrained into their positions, makes sense, right? Um, that there was not really a lot of self-criticism from any of them. Uh, so I don't think it's just Nick. I just think that that... Right. It's not like the prosecutor says, I should have done something differently, or that Amanda says that she should have right. done something no. differently. So I think that that's sort, of, that's sort of emblematic of what happens when the entire world focuses on something and everyone has such a strong ingrained opinion. Uh, you know, I think being self-critical would, would almost be surprising for these people in that in but that circumstance. To, to, to talk about self-criticism and people wanting to, you know, vilify Nick Pisa or, you know, some people want to vilify Giuliano Manini, that shouldn't everybody be kind of taking a look at themselves too and the the role that they played and not only consuming it, but in perpetuating the stories or perpetuating the feelings, right? Continuing to like engage with it and conti then continuing to feel a certain way and and having that be the thing that you want to talk about and you want to share and, and, and convince other people of. Like there should be a level of self-criticism that happens when you watch the film and maybe some of the moments that uh, people chuckle at um, are not meant to be laughs. They're meant to be these uh, moments where you should look in the mirror maybe for a split second and say, whoa, how did I contribute to that? And do I feel uncomfortable laughing at this moment? I want to thank Rod Blackhurst and Brian McGinn for talking to me. Their film, Amanda Knox, is now playing on Netflix. On our next episode, I talk to Ava DuVernay. She's best known as the director of Selma. Now she's directed a documentary called 13th. The title refers to the Constitution's 13th Amendment that ended slavery only with the loophole phrase, except as a punishment for a crime. 
In our conversation, I asked DuVernay about her education in politics and film. Your first feature-length documentary is called This is the Life. About Only the- you know that, Tom. <laughs> Only the doc guy knows about that little doc. Wow. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. Thanks to our team, series producer Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer Kyle Murphy, web designer Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator Sarah Modo, social media handlers Jordan Smith, Alana Schreiber, and executive producer Rafaela Nehausen. If you're in New York City this fall, you'll find me on Tuesday nights at IFC Center for Stranger Than Fiction, presenting a retrospective of documentaries by Jonathan Demme. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes. We'll be back next Thursday. Until then, you can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.